Hello and welcome to episode 189 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Today I am in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm Ben Olson and with me is Nathan Fox in... I'm in Los Angeles. Made it back last Yay. night. Yeah. Sweet. You got back from New York? Oh, I was just all over the place, man. It's been a, it's been <laughs> it's been wild. As you know, I tried to make it to uh I tried to make it out to the UVA event and then got screwed on my flights and couldn't make it. So, anyway, after long travel drama, I am back home and very happy to be here. Cool. Uh welcome home, I guess. Can I say that even though I'm not there? I don't know. Yeah, uh, you can glad say you welcome made it. home. Yeah. I'll be here for another whopping uh, two days or whatever because I'm going to Seattle University. Um, is this, wait, April 20, oh yeah, okay, so the show airs April 22nd and I will be in Seattle tomorrow, April 23rd, uh, as you listen to this, and giving a talk at 12.30 p.m. So you can go on our Instagram or on our on thinkinglsat.com or whatever and RSVP for that event if you want to come see me in Seattle. Awesome. Alrighty, and then um, today on the show, just a quick uh, note here, we're going to have Nina Marinero. She's a lawyer, a former yoga teacher, and currently the founder of Zen Prep, which helps law or LSAT students, law students, and future lawyers, or lawyers, I guess, really, um, strive for a better work-life balance. So she has a lot of advice for us there. And we're also going to cover a game. Huh? Is that right? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay, or a game from the June 2007 LSAT. Cool. You can always email the show at help at thinkinglsat.com. Send us your selfies if you're so inclined. You can always listen to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, thinkinglsat.com, which is about to get a facelift. If you are so inclined, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot to spread the word about the show. Demon updates. You know, geez, we've been working on the LSAT demon a lot this week. We made a lot of changes that people won't necessarily see uh, to the algorithm and some other things like that. But as we continue to expand the mind of LSAT demon... Um, we think that it is getting better and better at figuring out what questions to give people who use it. Great. And uh, the user base continues to grow, which is exciting. If you still haven't joined the Slack group, email us at help at com, and we'll get you in there and you can um, post uh, questions and uh, bugs that you see and we can get on those quicker. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for our, to our whole team um, for all the QA help and stuff as well that we really appreciate everybody's efforts and thanks for i guess just even to the user base reporting uh reporting bugs and anomalies and stuff uh, and requesting new explanations just uh keep doing that keep hitting that ask button and the demon will keep getting better and better yeah let's see here i i see here that we have a note that the last day to register for the june lsat is may 1st i thought i just read something that it was earlier than that well, let's look it up. Let's let's make sure we get that right information out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Registration deadline is April twenty fourth. So I don't know how we got May first in there, but yeah, maybe they changed it. I mean, they did change some dates recently. April twenty fourth is the last day to register for the June LSAT. So that's the last for sure pencil and paper LSAT. Yep. 
And that's going to be two days from the air date of this show. So if you have to take the LSAT in the pencil and paper format, you better register <laughs> right now. Not that it's that big of a deal, right? We've said this a million times, but if you're worried about the conversion to digital, you're worried about the wrong thing. It's just not going to be that. I mean, it might be a shit show when they do the transition. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But the eventually, the uh, the administration of the LSAT on the tablets is going to be pretty seamless. It's the same test. There's nothing new, nothing real different going on. It's fine. Yeah, I hear that all the time, and I always tell people, look, you're going to like the digital set because you're going to have more time. You don't have to bubble in uh, questions and so forth. That will give you a little more time, a little less stuff to worry about. I think it's good. By the way, the registration deadline for the July LSAT is now June 4th. Okay. So May 1st has no meaning whatsoever anymore. But Okay, cool. Okay, yeah. So let's dive into uh, we have an LSAT fundamental on the first game uh, in the June 2007 LSAT. If you don't have that LSAT, you can just Google it, June 2007 uh, LSAT, and it will be a PDF that pops up, first search result. And we are in section one. And in section one, we're going to talk about game one. Yeah, I think we're not actually calling this a fundamental because this is just continuing our coverage of the June 2007 LSAT. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, did I say that? I even I wasn't even aware of the fact that I said that. So that's, yeah. that's where we're at today. It's <laughs> okay. I think we to the beach here. I'm pretty sure we will uncover some. And in fact, I know I, I know we will uncover some fundamentals. If you listened to the very beginning of the show, I am pretty sure we covered this game like four years ago. Yeah. So wait, why are we doing it again? We're doing it again fun? because it somehow got lost. It got lost uh, in <laughs> in in the archives. So uh, we're gonna cover it again. But I do think that this game is a very useful game for beginners. I think it's a, a very useful game to just because it's a pretty straightforward sequencing game, but also because it's a really a, a game that is extremely susceptible to worlds and really pretty obvious for making worlds. Yeah, I think it's great. Should we dive in? Sure. Maybe I'll just start. I'll read. Um, so this was uh, the first game in section one and the way I ha- have the June 2007 LSAT listed and questions one through five. It starts with a company employee generates a series of five digit product codes in accordance with the following rules. The codes use the digits zero, one, two, three, four, and no others. So now stop a second. It's a five digit project product code, and it can only use the digits zero, one, two, three, four. Then we have each digit occurs exactly once in any code. So all we're doing is just putting zero, one, two, three, four in order. That's all these codes are. That's right. It's not like you're going to have 00112 or something like that. Every product code is going to have the digits 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. The only thing that's up for grabs right now is the order of those five digits. I think there's a certain type of LSAT student who panics on this game because they think it's mathy. Mm, there yeah. is actual math in it. That's true. Because the next rule says the second digit has a value exactly twice that of the first digit. And I think people at that point 
just this is where one place where people can just completely lose their mind. Do you see people mm-hmm. do that on this game? Like just I, I'm 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 always kind of surprised when people panic on this game, but I I think that maybe they're doing it because of like math phobia. Sure. Yeah. It's also a general problem I think in games where you you read a rule and you get the sense that there's multiple ways this could go down and the reality is that there's only a small handful. Right, like you're like, oh wow! So the 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 second digit has to be exactly twice that of the first. Like I I know what that means, but there's so many different things that could be twice that of the first. It's like yeah, but we only have four digits here, so or five digits, and how many of them could be exactly twice that of another? It's and and it's like I also think that when people are a slave to the the LSAT dogma of like writing down each rule. Mm-hmm. They now are getting caught up in like, okay, how do I write this like second digit two X first digit <laughs> or whatever, you know, yeah. they've got all these weird yeah. hieroglyphics and symbols and bullshit on their page. They start pulling out algebra. It's like X <laughs> equals. Yeah, they do. Two X. Wait, wait, why? Y equals. Yeah, sorry. Y equals two X. <laughs> oh, but uh, sorry. But the first, um, hmm. so <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, hold on. If you if you showed this to boy, you think all your boys would get it, Ben? <laughs> I don't know about that. Sometimes I have faith in them that is uh, not always rewarded. But um, yeah, my youngest is six. So okay, so maybe I, I think not the six year old. If I translated it though, I said this is what the rule is saying. Mm-hmm. I think you can figure it out. My buddy Andy lives in Napa, and he has a smart. Uh, 10 year old named Julian and okay. he brought the boys down here for a little um, boys weekend visit where we just like basically played video games and played board games and goofed around and stuff. But one of the things that we did was we, we like to make it a little bit of like a enrichment weekend as well. There has to be some education going on. And so uncle Nathan, you know, busts out the June 2007 LSAT this game specifically and I mm-hmm. sit down on my couch with Julian and I'm like, Hey Julian, we have to do this before we can play any more, you know, star Wars battlefront. Yeah. Let's do this. And he's like, I had to kind of help him. But when Julian saw that the second digit has a value exactly twice that of the first. And when mm-hmm. I pointed him back to the fact that these are the only five digits that you're allowed to use and you have to use each of them exactly once. And I said, Julian, can you find like, you know, digits where one of them is exactly twice the first he went like oh uh well one and two and two and four yep (laughs) and i'm like correct (laughs) and i think that's just the first like it's sort of blindingly obvious thing here but if the second digit is twice the first uh the second digit has to be an even number there's only two even numbers on the page yeah. Sometimes people freak out and they want to make zero and one <laughs> an eligible product code start. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. You went to college, which means that you went to high school, which means that you went to junior high. How do you possibly think that zero and one, one is not twice zero? No, 
Yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> so I, I mean, in this game, I think ideally for me, the first thing that would go on my page is just one, two, blank, 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 and two, four, blank, blank, blank. Yep. Literally the first thing I would write, I think, is that. Yeah. Because that's it's just like I want to make worlds. So what that is is two worlds, a world where I have a one, two as my first two digits. Yep. And then I have another world where I have two, four as my first two digits. <laughs> it's sort of like, duh, I don't need to write down the rule about how the second digit has a value exactly twice that of the first. I just bake it right in to yep. a solution that has two worlds. It's either every eligible product code has to start with either one, two or two, four. That's the only way to satisfy that rule. So let's just write that down. Yeah. And I, I think everything just gets so much easier from that point. I'm not even done reading all the rules yet. The last rule says that the third digit has to be less than the fifth. Yep. And now given the fact that you've created a world where one and two is the, uh, first two slots and another world where two and four are the first two slots. You just have to look at each world one at a time and figure out, okay, wait a sec here. We only have three options left. So in the first world you have one and two in slots in the first two slots, which means you have digits zero, three and four left. So if this, if the value of the third digit in the product code is less than the value of the fifth digit, you know that the third digit cannot be zero or three. I'm sorry, it can't be four because then it would automatically be higher than everything else that's left. So it's got to be zero or three. And since there are only two options, I would split this world into two subworlds, one in which zero is third and one in which three is third. Okay, I love this. Um, what? Tell me, I've heard you in class uh, that we've taught together, I've heard you say you have like a couple questions. It's like, what do you know and what's left or something like that? Yeah, so there's so one thing that I repeatedly ask myself, and I guess I'm even doing it here and I wasn't totally aware of it, and that is that when I'm in a situation and I'm trying to decide whether or not I've, I'm done, making inferences or doing work is I'm first going to ask myself, well, what variables are left? And so in this first world, we used up digits one and two, and there are three slots left. And so there must be three digits that are left. And I'm just wondering what those digits are. And a lot of times I'll encourage people to write down those digits because sometimes just writing them down is enough for them to go, oh, okay, wait, 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 hold on. I know something about this digit or I know something about that digit but even if they don't realize it just from writing those digits down um, my next question is well what do we know about them so in this case we have three digits left zero three and four because we've already used up digits one and two in the first two slots and then the question becomes well, what do I know about them and we just learned that the third digit has to be less than the fifth so the third digit can't be four because it's always got to be smaller than whatever is going to come last and four is the big, biggest digit that we have left. So it, it's the two questions are who's left and what do we know about them? But I feel like it's a great test for figuring out whether you can do more work 
right? Because that's a very common question. Like, how do I know that I'm done making inferences or figuring out the game? And it's like, uh, well, one way to figure that out is to see who's still in play and what rules apply to those variables. And so not only does it help me make more inferences if I can make more inferences, it also helps me know that I can't make more inferences. Like if, if the variables that are left don't have any rules applicable to them, none of the rules apply, then it's like, okay, well, then these variables are truly free at this point, so it would be foolish to try to keep going because there are no more inferences. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of writing down the remaining variables. So right now I have one, two, blank, 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 and then I have a zero, three, four, like floating in space up above it. Yes. And I do and think... sometimes when I'm... Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that helps me to see that like, okay, so, you know... Uh, the four won't work in the third spot because the four has the third spot has to be less than the fifth spot. So yeah, clearly it's going to be zero or three. Yeah. And so now there, and now you're making a choice that you want to split that, huh? I like that. That's right. Yeah. So I want to go back for a half second. You said that you had zero, three and four floating in space around there. And that's exactly what I do. Sometimes I'll list them out and I'll use a comma to sort of signal to myself that there's no relationship here. Yep. I have that. I have zero comma three comma four. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's funny because people, it's a small thing, right? Like just list them out, just write down who's left. And people are like, I don't know. You know, I don't, you give advice sometimes in class and maybe like two thirds of the class does it and the rest just kind of sit there. And it's like, okay, well, cover up those three variables for a half second and now try to work with, yeah. now try to do this. And it's just like, it becomes, it's not impossible. You, you can, but you have to at some point pull those pieces out from your mind. Why not just have them there in front of you so you can move them around like on a game board? Yeah. And you're accessing like the, you know, there's these sort of visual spatial operations that we're doing all the time subconsciously. And now mm-hmm. your brain is sort of like doing that work without you even trying to do the work. It's just like, oh, zero, three, four, right there. Oh, okay, I see. Uh, you can, you can, your head can sort of, sort of shuffle them around once you can see them. But if you can't see yeah. them, it's a, it's a lot more difficult. All right, so I, I really like this. All right. Yeah, then I have another two questions. I mean, I think fundamentally those two questions, who's left and what do you know about them, are the ones that I use universally. It's like I use that at the end of setting up for the game. I use that after setting up an if question. Just anywhere where you're trying to decide, can I figure out more things or am I done figuring out things? But um, this next question relates specifically to worlds, and that is, oh, okay, I see here that four, because it's the biggest number left, can't go in the third slot. Um, That means either zero or three goes there. And so I could write zero slash three in the third slot, say, hey, this slot has to be either a zero or a three. It can't be a four. But I like to ask myself, okay, wait a sec, how many options do I have? And how helpful would it be to make assumptions about each of those options? So here, for example, I have two options. I can either put zero in the third slot or I can put three in the third slot. So how many options do I have? I only have two. Sometimes you have like four or five or eight. You know, it's like, um, and the fewer options I have, the more likely I'm going to start going down those two different paths. In other words, I'm going to create worlds on the basis of those assumptions. So Assumption one here is that the third slot is zero, and assumption two is that the third slot is three. So it's like, uh, if I don't have many options, 
and it seems like it would be helpful to make those assumptions, then I want to go ahead and keep splitting up this game and make worlds yet again. So yeah, here, well, I mean, hmm. it's like if if these are paths, you know, mm-hmm. it's like yep. the fewer the paths there are, the yep. more likely I'm going to map those paths out before I start messing with the questions. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, well, I can see that this is going to branch right here with either a zero or a three. Mm-hmm. Why don't I just explore what happens when it's zero for a minute and then explore three for a minute and then I'll move on to my two, four worlds, but I'll just sort of like do this exploration once at the beginning of the game so that I yeah. don't have to keep relearning the same thing a million times later in the game. And we're doing that because there are only two paths here or there's, there's a limited number of these paths. And so, Hey, we might as well just get them on the map. Yeah. And I do, I do want to emphasize that it's whether or not I create worlds is a function of how many paths or worlds I have to create or follow, but it's also a function of how helpful those paths are seem like they will be, right? Like sometimes people, I think at first, they hear me talk about, oh, how many options do I have? How many paths do I have? And it's like, oh, well, you have two paths. Therefore, you should always do it. It's like, eh, no. Like, I mean, some paths just aren't that helpful. Like, you know that T has to be first or second, but knowing that T is first or second doesn't tell you anything else. So walking down that path ends up being a fruitless exercise. But like, on, on other occasions, there might be five paths. And it's like, geez, well, that's so many, you shouldn't do it. And it's like, yeah, but if you go down each of these paths, you can see right away you're going to know another thing. It's like maybe tunnels is a better analogy. It's like you're walking down a dark tunnel, but if you start walking down it, are you going to start seeing the light at the end of, other end of the tunnel? If so, maybe you should just go ahead and walk down those five tunnels and then see how the game is going to unfold Love this. Um, okay. in other, in other cases, it's like, yeah, I start to walk down that tunnel, but it's still dark. So what was the point of walking down it in the first place? Yeah. The good example of the dark tunnel is, Hey, S can go first or last. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, but if you make those two, if you start exploring S first, nothing happens. It's just complete darkness. And if S yeah. is last, it's just complete darkness. Well, then that's probably not the best place to split. Like that's just not the yep. way we want to start mapping this all out. Yeah. On the other hand, if if S first and S seventh did things, if you started to see that, oh yeah, well that's going to trigger this and that's going to trigger that and that's going to do this other thing, then okay, it might be worth mapping it out. All right. So yeah. how how do we how do we do this then? What's the next step here in the one two world? We know that zero or three can go third. Yeah. So how do we do this? So I'm going to go ahead and put, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to, so we have two two diagrams, right? One um, in which one and two are first and second, and one where two and four are first yeah. and second. I'm going to take the one that has the one and two first and second, and then three empty slots after it, and I'm just going to draw the same thing to the right of it. I mean, you could do it immediately below it if you wanted to. I'm doing to. it, it below depends. because I really want to keep my codes vertically stacked with each other. I left, I purposely left a bunch of space in between my one, two world and my two, four world because for that reason. Sure. Um, that's fine. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, that's great. Out to the as right. long as it's organized, right? And like yes. systematic. And yeah. yeah. And if I, I, I just find that with, with games like this where I have sequencing, if I can vertically stack all my worlds, it ends up, there are certain question types where it'll just be like, what 
uh, digit can't be fourth. And mm-hmm. if I have it vertically stacked, then I can easily just scan down my list of fourth and I can tell, oh, whoops, okay, yeah, there's somebody who can't be fourth. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So we have one and two and then one and two, and they're on top of each other. So in the top one, uh, I probably would have zero be third, and in the, the one immediately below it, I'd have digit three be third. Okay. So I have one, two, zero, and then one, two, three. With blank blank after both of them, right? So one, two, zero, blank blank, 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 and then right below that, one, two, three, blank blank. Yep. Yep. And in the in the world where it's, I always go to the low hanging fruit. So, in the world where it's one, two, three, and three is third, you know that the last digit has to be four, since it's the only digit that could be higher than three. Okay, so we just write four right into the fifth spot. Yep, we write four into the fifth spot, and now we only have one variable left, that's zero, so that has to go in the fourth spot. Right, okay, and then in the top world, do we need to split that again? No, we don't actually. So in the top world, if you're stuck, you'd say, wait a sec, there's two slots left. Who's left, who's left? We have four and three, right? And the only rule that's still in play it well is is well that might be in play yep. is that the fifth digit has to be higher than the third digit, yep. and regardless of whether we put three there or four there, it's going to be higher. So we can't violate this rule, which means the last two digits can go in either of the empty slots. No matter what, we're going to follow the rules. That means that there are no more inferences to be made. I would go ahead and write three and four into the third or into the fourth and fifth slots. Yep. I would just have an arc going over them so that it shows that they can go back and forth. Yeah, an arc between the three and the four, or a, I like to think of it as a handle. Um, it's just like you can flip-flop using that handle. So, okay, cool. Yeah, great. So um, three and four are going back and forth. And now I would go down to the uh, 2-4 world, right, that we had originally, and do the exact same thing. In the 2-4 world, we have two in slot one, we have four in slot two, and then we have three blank slots. And we know that the third slot has to be smaller than the fifth slot, and the three remaining variables are zero, one, and three. So three can't go in the third slot. It's the highest digit that's left. And so it's got to be zero and one. So we'd have two, four, zero, blank, blank, and then two, four, one, blank, blank. And one thing that happens is with these games is that it might have taken you a minute to do your one, two worlds. Yes. But when you move on to the two, four worlds, you're going to realize that, oh, I'm just doing the same shit over and over. And it, it yeah. it'll like your knowledge of the game increases and then your speed with which you're able to complete this map also increases. So two four zero blank blank and two four one blank blank. Where do we go? Where's yep. the low hanging fruit? The low hanging fruit is the two four one world because if one is in the third slot, then the only variable that could go in the fifth fifth slot is three. So I'm going to put three in the fifth slot, and then that's going to put zero, the remaining variable, in the fourth slot. Yep. Okay, so we have two, four, one, zero, three. And then in the world where zero is in the third slot, 
it doesn't matter whether one or three goes in the fifth slot because they're both higher than zero. So those can go back and forth between the last two slots. Um, and so I'd write them in with an arc connecting them to show that they can move back and forth. It is important that you write that arc. Sometimes people are like, or signal to yourself somehow that those variables can go back and forth because uh, sometimes people will write in, well, they're like, hey, this could be true. It could be that one is in slot four and three is in slot five. And it's like, yeah, although that could be true, since that doesn't have to be true, you've now constrained your game in a way that it doesn't need to be constrained, and that's going to limit the number of options you can see that are available. Good. Okay, so we have our four worlds, and they are complete. Um, Random side note, given the fact that there are four worlds, and two of them are completely determined, right? Yep. Uh, We have two worlds that aren't completely determined, uh, but they only have two options each because the variables are either going to be 3, 4, or 4, 3, or 1, 3, and 3, 1. So that means there are only six total ways that these variables can be arranged in this game. That's it. Yep. Question one. Given the fact that the worlds are very complete, I would jump into the questions. The first one says, if the last digit of an acceptable product code is one, I'm, I'm going to stop right there. Yep. I, I don't even, I almost never read after the comma. And I would look up and I would say, okay, which worlds could possibly end with a product code of one? And there's only one world that could do that. Yep. And it's the world that says two, four, zero, blank, blank. And in the blank slots, we have options of putting in one and three. And so we could go ahead and put one last which would then put three into the fourth slot. And if you want to write this down, you can, but you could also probably hold that in your head, right? I mean, I... Oh, yeah. For this game, like I hold stuff, and this is something you'll get a lot better at, and something I was just talking about with my class the other night. We were doing a, a much more complicated game, and I was like, can you see this in your head? Can you hold this? And some of them were like, yes. Most of them were like, yes. And some of them were like, I don't know. And it's like, okay, we'll just write it, but... You as you get better and better at these games, the more stuff you can easily hold in your head, which means you don't have to draw stuff. So if you do a good setup that has a lot of drawing, it frees you up to just do almost all the work in your head later. Yeah, when I it's very fast. Right. When I see this question, if the last digit is one, I also again yep. I don't read the rest of that. I certainly don't look at the answer choices. I just glance at my my setup and I go, oh well, there's only one world where that can happen. I would have to flip flop the one and the three, and mm-hmm. so it's going to be two four zero three one. The answer is yeah. two four zero three one. Yep. And then now it's like, okay, ask me whatever you want to ask me. Yeah, and the funny thing is, <laughs> sometimes people too are like, but wait, you could have figured out the answer before you even like set the one and the three into spots. And it's like, yeah, but it just doesn't matter. I just do whatever work I can beforehand and then start looking yeah, at the answers. My response to that is always, okay, great, this time. But other times, yes. you might not have known that. You might have gone, oh, it's only possible in this world, 240. Okay, let me check the answer choices. And then if you don't immediately, you know, the answer choice could be three is in the fourth spot, right? That's not, yeah. that's not the answer here though. And yeah. so it wouldn't have been as easy as just glancing at the, well, it's only in the two, four, zero world. That's that here. That's enough to answer the question because the answer turns out to be a, the first digit is two. 
Yeah. But the fact that you would have been able to take a, you know, one second shortcut there, I'm not in the business of looking for one second shortcuts. You know, I'm in the business of racking up correct answers and yeah. on something that's this easy, I would just say, Hey, two, four, zero, three, one. Okay. Ask me any question you want. And they say here, which one must be true? The first digits two. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. Because it's the first question, maybe I would go through the wrong answer choices here just to be a hundred percent sure. Yeah. You know, so two, four, zero, three, one, does the second digit have to be zero? No, it can't be. Yeah. Third digit three. No. Fourth digit four. No. Fourth digit zero. No. I guess the answer is A. Yeah. I'm on the right path. Okay, cool. Yeah. Funny thing, Nathan, I actually have to hop up pretty soon, but I think the thing about worlds is now that we have these done, this is going to go so quickly. Yeah, let's just jam just, through them. This will be easy. Yeah. Okay. So the second question starts with which. And normally I skip to the if questions, but I find that when my worlds are so complete, like these worlds, where I can just see every possibility and I'm confident that I can see them, I just tend to, to do the questions in order. I agree. So I'm like, eh, all the work has been done. Okay, so here, question two. Which one of the following must be true about any acceptable product code? Okay, what must be true about all of them? A, does it have to be true always in all of our worlds that the digit one appears in some position before the digit two? Scan down. I see that not happening in at least two of the worlds, so that answers Yeah, two can be first. Goodbye. Yep. B, the digit one appears in some positions before the digit three. Nope. We just, I mean, (laughs) question number one talked about what happens if the last digit is one. Yeah. So I guess that, I mean, that actually gets rid of both A and B. Anyway. Yeah. If you're not paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. C, uh, the digit two appears in some position before the digit three. Uh, that happens in the first two worlds and in the last two worlds. Yeah, if the only possible starting combinations are one, two, and two, four, then I guess that means the two is always before the three. Yeah. That's the answer. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, question number three says, if the third digit of an acceptable product code is not zero, if the third digit is not zero, which one of following must be true? Okay, well, if the third digit is not zero, that's going to put us into two of our worlds. Yep. Um, the one that says one two three zero four, and the one that says two four one zero three. Yep. So, which one of following must be true? It's going to be true about both of these worlds. Does in both of these worlds does the second digit have to be two? No. In both of these worlds, answer choice B. Does the third digit have to be three? No. Answer choice C, the fourth digit is zero. Yeah, that's true in both of these worlds. So that's the answer. Yeah, one, two, three, zero, four, or two, four, one, zero, three, fourth digit zero. That's the answer. C, moving on. Moving on. Okay, question number four. Any of the following pairs could be the third and fourth digits, respectively, of an acceptable product code, except. This is a so good example where, of, yeah, were you going to say the vertical yeah, orientation? Them, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. So the fact that we stacked these all on top of, G- of each other, thanks to Nathan's recommendation, we can just scan down and see if these two digits, um, it does say respectively. So this is the order that they have to yeah. be in. Could they go into slots three and four? So if you've been following along and drawing this, um, this will be easy. If you're listening in your car, don't worry about it. But answer choice A, zero and one. Could we ever have that? Yeah, we could in our third world. Yep. 
at least my third world. Yep. So that answer choice is wrong because that could be true. Zero and three, yeah, the same world, so that's out. One and zero, that happens as well. Three and zero happens as well. Three and four never happens because the only world in which three could be third is the one, two, three world, but the fourth digit there is zero. So that is why that is the answer because that can never happen. Questions like these are so much easier when you've made worlds because you've just anticipated all of the wrong answers. It's just like, yep, we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. We can do that. Nope. Can't do that one. That's the answer. Yeah. Moving on. All right. Last question. Yeah. Five. Which one following must be true about any acceptable product code? Okay, again, must be true, must be true about all, in all of our worlds. A, there's exactly one digit between the digit zero and the digit one. Uh, no, we've seen cases where they're more than one digit away, so that's wrong. They can also be right next to each other, so yep. Yep, there's exactly one between one and two. Nope, the first two worlds uh, violate that. C, there are at most two between one and three. Um, no, we could have three be last and one be first so there would be actually three digits between them that's in the first world if you're following along first world yep d there are most two between two and three um nope i'm seeing in the last world that there are three between two and three and then e there are at most two between two and four at most two so two or fewer in the last two worlds two and four are right next to each other in the first two worlds two is second so that the most digits that could come between them are two. So answer choice E is correct. Yeah, even when four is last, one, two, three, zero, four, the, the two and the four can't get farther apart than that. And there's two digits in between. So number five, E. Yeah, cool. Last thing I would say here is if you find yourself testing out individual answer choices, you either have not done enough work in your original diagram or you have not done enough work in the question itself before you looked at the answer choices. Yeah, completely. That's just a good sign that you could have gone deeper into the game before messing around with answer choices. Yeah. Cool. Um, Well, do you want to, should we run through anything else before we do so? No, I mean, I think we can leave it there. We're obviously going to have to go get our uh, interviewee, Nina Marinero. So uh, we will do that right now enjoy today on the show we have nina marinero nina you're a lawyer a former lobbyist and yoga teacher and i guess you've started your own company recently or when did you start your company i started it at the end of 2017 and it's only been recently that i've gone full-time with it okay and wait what's the name of the company again so Zen Prep uh, is how it started because I initially focused on wellness during test prep. But now that I've gotten uh, some interest from practicing lawyers as well, I just changed the name on my socials to Love Lawyer Life. But yeah, the company is still called Zen Prep. All righty. So you reached out to us because you have advice for, it sounds like, not only people who are preparing for the LSAT, but people who are in law school and then eventually lawyers, right? You're basically looking to help people in the legal profession have a better work-life balance. Is that a good summary of your mission? Yeah, of course. So I've just, you know, throughout my journey and I've noticed that I did things a little bit differently starting with when I started studying for the LSAT. 
And I always balanced studying and being quote unquote productive with my substantive work with also taking care of my health, my rest, and just my hobbies. And I've found that that has paid off for me in the long run because when I found that I wasn't taking care of those other areas of my life, my performance in school and work suffered. And I've noticed a trend among this with my other friends throughout law school and practicing as well. Great. Yeah. So most of our listeners are, are of course, preparing for the LSAT, uh, preparing to start the lovely journey of law school. What what is some of the most common piece of, pieces of advice that you give to people in that situation? Sure. So that's a great question. The biggest piece of advice that I give to people is know your why. So it's important to go into LSAT prep and the law school application process with a strong sense of why you're doing what you're doing, especially in this day and age where it's not like it was 10, even 20 years ago, where there was certain traditional professions that you went into just because. There are so many resources at your fingertips now, and there are so many opportunities. So for you to choose law school, it's got to be something that you really, really have a strong reason for, whether it's to make a change in your community or to have the money to take care of your family. Whatever it is, you need to identify that now because it just gets harder as you go along. And I'm not saying that to discourage people, but I'm just saying it to give a realistic expectation that the LSAT is just the first step of many and it's the first of many trials that you will have to go through to prove yourself to be successful in this profession. So, Identifying a strong reason why will keep you going when things look really overwhelming or when you just lack motivation or when other people will say things to you that make you just feel crappy because that will happen too. And yeah, that's my biggest piece of advice. So you've listened to the show before and you know that we uh, discourage people from going to law school all the time. So we might be some of those people <laughs> who might be discouraging people. Uh, if someone doesn't have a why, I would say, uh, it sounds like maybe this isn't the right path for you. I mean, maybe they could be sensing something that they haven't made explicit in their minds yet, but how do you encourage people to figure out their why if they don't have a why? So that is absolutely a great point, and I have to admit that I am totally someone that discourages people all the time too. And I hear you guys say all the time in the podcast, do not pay for law school. And as someone who really wanted, I had such a strong why going into law school and I didn't pay for law school, there were still so many times I wanted to quit and thought it wasn't right for me. And so especially if you find that you are in a situation where you have to pay and you're doubting things, it's okay to take a step back and take a break. So with that said, if you are still, no matter where you are in your journey, if you are still not sure of the overarching reason why you want to go to law school, and it's not just because you don't know what else to do, because there's so many other things you could do, I definitely use journaling, but I know it's not for everyone. Whatever it is, find some kind of internal practice where you can really sort out what you want to do. For me, it's journaling, and I find that I can get a clear mind after I move my body. So exercise goes in with that well, and then I sit and I journal, and I unfold things like an onion so or unpeel. So I'll ask myself, why do I want to take the LSAT? Okay, 
because I want to go to law school. Then I'll ask a second layer. Well, why do I want to go to law school? Because I want to be a lawyer. Why do I want to be a lawyer? And for me, it was personally because I like control over things. I like to have control over my own life. I like to have control and the knowledge of what's going on. I don't want people to make decisions for me. I want to be actively participating in the conversation. I want to know what I'm reading. I don't want to get taken advantage of in my life. And even if I never practice law again, the education I have will only help me because I will be that much more business savvy in whatever I do. So for me, that was my why, but it took me a lot of really digging deep to unpeel that because it's not necessarily something that you can admit right away if it's something like, oh, I just am a control freak and I, you know, most of us probably can relate to that. But, you know, a lot of people have bleeding hearts and they want to go to law school because they want to give back to their community or they want to go into politics. But whatever it is, you just need to sit with yourself and journaling has been that that means for me. Uh, it's interesting that you talk about those whys. Uh, I think a lot of times when people ask why and then they ask why again and they dig deeper, um, they have to be honest with themselves because at the end of the day, sometimes the why is just, oh, I want to do this because my father will look approvingly upon it. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> at least admit that to yourself and then figure out if that's really a motivating, like a reason that's good enough to go. And will that get you through all of this that you have to go through? And probably not. And um, anyways, yeah, I was just, it's like you have to be honest with what your true motivation is. Is it money? <laughs> what is it? Right. And so I can tell you that once you get into law school, it's a totally different game because you will get there and you'll notice how little people try. Like, it was astonishing to me how much I was type A going into law school. And then all of us kind of, by two all a year, you kind of just start to just go through the motions. And the people that were the most unhappy and the people that were just going through the motions and they weren't joining organizations, they weren't building their network, they weren't putting themselves in positions to have a successful career after law school were the people that didn't know their why. They didn't have a strong attachment to why they were going to law school. They spent all this money to take the LSAT and to, you know, maybe it was their second career and they felt like they just needed to do something else, but they were just going through the motions and they were still trading their time for money. And, you know, they, I, I could tell you that in this job market, you're always going to be giving more time than you'll be getting back. So it's really something that is important to figure out before you go in and before you make all those sacrifices. Because another thing I talk about a lot on my uh, channel and in my community is the high rate of um, depression and drug abuse and substance abuse and drinking that the legal profession has. And I've seen a connection between the amount of people that just – they're working all the time and they don't know why and they don't have any kind of feet on the ground in terms of their personal lives. They're just pouring everything into their professional life for they don't even know what reason. And so um, it is important to know that there is a highly disproportionate amount of people in the legal profession that suffer from um, mental illnesses, if you want to call it that, or it might just be substance abuse in some cases. It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg, but... It's a reality. Yeah. So wait, you are no longer a practicing attorney. Is that right? This is what you do. 
Yeah, this is what I do. I actually, um, when I was in Oregon, I was practicing, well, I was working as a law clerk because I wasn't admitted in Oregon, but I was working for a lawyer there. And um, I do sometimes do some work on the side. I have people that come to me to help them start their businesses. And I do a lot of help for startups and for people in the wellness sphere. I help them organize their um, company structure and things like that. And I've had a lot of friends who have come to me with advice for contracts. I have a lot of friends who do freelance. So um, I still maintain my license and I practice, I would say that's my part-time job now. And I, as much as I'm a complete advocate for work-life balance, I have to admit that last year, January 2018, I completely burnt out and I left my job at this really powerful lobbying firm in the city because I just, I didn't have a day off in three years. And I, as much as I was going to yoga and trying to cook for myself and doing things that still made me feel fulfilled, it wasn't enough because I wasn't honest with myself, I got what I perceived as a dream job and I thought I had to hold on to it. But when I went to some of the networking events and meetings with politicians and I was standing in rooms with people and I looked around and I didn't see anyone with a lifestyle that I wanted to emulate, I had to be honest with myself and I had to say, okay, I need to do something different. So that prompted me to go and travel. And when I was traveling, I met a lot of people who were digital nomads and expats and that actually uh, propelled while I was working on Zen Prep, I, w- I was traveling and that actually propelled my side business of helping my freelance friends that I would meet uh, draft their contracts and help them with things like that. So what was your why going into law school and what's your why now? Has that changed? Yeah, absolutely. So I was one of those people who in my sixth grade yearbook, it said, what job do you want to be? And my name said lawyer. And I, my first word apparently was no when I was a kid and I'm a first generation lawyer. So my whole family growing up, they knew I was very type A, they knew I was really organized and I loved to give my two cents and I loved to, you know, have the last word for better or for worse. And so it was kind of always assumed I was going to go to law school. I loved history in high school and I studied philosophy in college and I didn't know why law school. I just didn't know what other options there were. I saw my friends graduating from college and getting degrees in quote unquote business. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what jobs were out there. I didn't know, especially in today's day and age where there's digital marketing and there's, you have the internet at your fingertips. Not that I didn't, but social media, like you can see what other people are doing. And so I just went to law school because it was the, um, guaranteed next step. Like Everything was unfolded for you. It's actually a really easy path if you look at it like that because everything is outlined for you. So if you don't know why, it's very easy to fall into that trap because it's such a clear path for people. But I fell into the trap, but I also got a full scholarship offer, so it was a no-brainer. But then once I was in law school and I saw my other friends making money already that weren't in law school and they were doing all these cool things and they worked in all these cool New York City companies that had like, you know, corporate wellness days and they all went to happy hours and they had these clients take them out to these cool events. I started to question, why am I, you know, why am I committed to this career if it's 
not the day-to-day life that I want because the day-to-day life includes fielding a lot of phone calls from really angry people, whether it's your client, opposing counsel, your bosses, bankers, real estate agents, whoever it is. You're always going to have to be the bearer of bad news and the person to receive the bad news. So that was not really, you know, for someone who's as happy-go-lucky as me, it was kind of a bummer every day. And the day-to-day also included sitting down a lot and like not getting up and out there and having stiff necks and stiff backs. And, you know, I'm 25 years old at that point. Like that's the last thing I wanted to be complaining about. So then my why changed into, okay, well, I'm really grateful for this opportunity because I went straight to law school from college as a 22-year-old and I had no business skills and I had no knowledge of the way the world worked before then. So at the very least, I got a free education with so much information that can translate to success in any other field. And then my why became looking around at my friends and my coworkers and seeing their lifestyles and seeing how like they wished that they could do other things but they always dismissed it as oh well I can't go to the gym or I can't you know I wish I could do that or I wish I could go hang out with my friends but you know or I wish I could go travel but you know we we're lawyers we can't and so my why became showing people that just because we chose this field does not mean that we're not entitled to developing a sustainable and successful career and lifestyle. Like we can build work-life balance just because we're in this profession. The law is a very slow moving and outdated field. And a lot of things we do are very antiquated, but we can catch up. And so that's why I changed into trying to promote work-life balance for my colleagues and myself. Yeah. Okay. So you basically didn't have a good why when you went into law school and maybe that's why you're encouraging people to figure that out now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I, that's exactly kind of what happened to me. I really didn't even have a a conscious why or any reason other than, um, I think some family members had been lawyers and I thought, Oh, okay, well, that seems like something I could do. The thought, I, I think I literally made the decision over like five minutes it's it's a it's it's embarrassing but <laughs> but that's the way it is for most people you know everyone gets thrown in there thinking and being told their whole life like oh you should be a lawyer like you're so smart you're so good at convincing people and it's like those people that tell us those things are the people that don't want to fight with us or they're sick of hearing our opinions so they want us to go to law school to meet other people we can be around that are kind of the same you know that's what i found sure yeah, well-meaning advice that's unfounded or ungrounded in anything. Yeah, Nathan, do you have anything you want to chime this, in here on? On this issue of whys, I, I want to know if there are good whys and bad whys, or better whys and worse whys. I don't really believe so. I mean, like, I'm not the one to judge that, and it, that's a question of morality as well, and, you know, whoever the judge is, it ain't me. But I do have to say that, like, even my friends who – their why is so strong and it's not a why I would relate to. Like they just love power and they love, they love um, making a big, powerful impact in, in our laws and they love, you know, money and they love that idea, the traditional idea of success. They are successful and they are happy, but those are people who are so strongly committed to the work that they're doing and the clients that they're working for that they don't care that they're working all all day every day like they don't care that that's their whole life like 
they're happy doing that, but not- They get energy from that. Yeah, yeah. Like my best friend from law school loves that. She is so committed to her job and we used to work together and we had a brief falling out when I left because it was, you know, she brought me in there and it was supposed to be like our dream job together and it was at first, but then I was being honest with myself, like I couldn't keep up with that level of work and that rate you know, I'm still so happy for her because she is just succeeding at such an exponential rate. Like, but she loves that. And, you know, now we've found our differences bring us together. But yeah, you have to be honest with yourself. And she's totally doing her thing and she's so happy and she's doing really well financially as well. But you got to know what you want. You earlier mentioned a why that was like, support my family or something like that. That's what, that's what prompted my question because I just think we, we get a lot of with law specifically, I think we get a lot of people who just sort of, they think that's why, but they don't, I think that maybe they just don't really understand the difference between what you just talked about, Nina, which is a good why. I love money. I love power. I know what I'm getting myself into. I'm going to go kick ass and be a law firm lawyer is one thing. But I think this is a good career so I can support my family is, I think, something that people say without really knowing what they're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's a really good point. And as soon as you brought that up, I had like a flashback to one of the first firms I worked at and one of the partners there. And he was this nice middle-aged guy and he had a wife who we went to law school with and two daughters and his why, you know, because then his wife, like after she had the kids, she never went back to work or practicing. So he was the full supporter of their family. And I don't know if that's fully what he signed up for, but I'm also not one to like pry into his business. But at the same time, I saw how stressed he was and I saw how much he would flip out and he would just sit in his office with the lights off. And he was very visibly like distressed and depressed at work. And he would just take naps in the middle of the day. And he, that was the type of firm where I worked at until Our hours, our mandatory hours were 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Like that was our 5 p.m. We could not leave before 7 p.m. No vacations the first year, you know, no benefits or anything like that. And he was one of the partners there. And like right after I left there, I heard that he actually, um, they broke up the partnership and he went to go be an associate at a different firm because he just couldn't handle that pressure and that stress anymore. And he wanted to just go back to just having less responsibility. And so I get how his why was so strong. He loved his family so much and he was the sole breadwinner for his family. But really like situations change and things change in your life. So you do need, everyone wants to support their family financially, but you need to have some kind of um, attachment to the actual work itself. And so that's why I definitely recommend people take a gap year. I didn't take a gap year, but go work at a law firm see what it's like day to day because it's not what you see on tv it's not what you see in the newspaper with the crazy politics that go on right now um i think it was an article in the above the law that said politics are always changing but law school debt is forever and that resonated (laughs) with me so hard so you know it's just you have to have an attachment to what you're doing the actual day-to-day operations you know 
Okay, so that why does need to be specifically related to like legal practice or some some sort of a law career path specifically, not just a this is a good path, like this is a good career. You know, there's doctors and lawyers. Like I want to be one of those and I couldn't make it as a doctor, so I'm going to be a lawyer. Right. Oh my gosh. That's not a why. (laughs) That is so funny you say that because in law school, I looked around and a lot of the times I was like, hmm, so where are all the people that were, you know, no offense to anyone, where are all the people that were too dumb from med school, huh? (laughs) Because that's what it kind of felt like. It felt like a lot of people were there because they wanted a traditional profession. They wanted the clout that came with it. But if you don't go, and I'm not saying that you have to go to a T14 law school, and I'm not saying you have to score. It's great if you can score in the 90th percentile or higher on the LSAT, but you don't have to to be a lawyer. But those people that don't, you need to have other motivations. Like for me, when I had my scholarship, I was obviously going to go through the motions and finish and graduate and try out the career because why not? Like, you know, I, I didn't have any debt. I didn't have any other skin in the game other than my investment and my time. But for the other people that like, you know, just want to, I see all the time in some of the forums I'm in, people are like, oh, I'm going to start studying for the LSAT, uh, in May for the June LSAT and I want to get into law school by the fall like is that enough time and I mean sure you can get into a law school I'm sure I don't know about the timing necessarily but you can get into law school if that's what you really want but do you have to why do you have to go right away why do you have to just go in and you know just take whatever grade you get the first time and like accept whatever you don't have to take no for an answer and you don't have to take the schools you get accepted into the first time as the end all be all like if it's something you really want you should try your best because it will pay off later on if it's something you really want but if it's not something you are really committed to and you're just gonna get into any law school then you're probably setting yourself up for disappointment because there are so many other careers you can go into that require a lot less time and money as an investment. You know, one thing that I keep thinking about as as we talk about all of this um, is that I don't I don't have the numbers correct for this, but there's a general rule that I've heard that if you look at hours worked for just workers in the US in general, if if you look at workers who work 10% more than the average number of hours worked per week in that industry, they tend to make uh, 40% more than everyone else. So, you know, it's not like you're working a lot more, but you work more than everyone else around you and you end up taking in a lot more of the rewards of that work. And I'm thinking about lawyers, and it seems like that difference is even more pronounced. I mean, you're talking about your friends who love what they do, and they they work long hours, and I don't think they care that much on some level because they they get energy from doing what they're doing. And and we see that. Those people are at big law firms, and they're making $160,000 a year starting out because they also worked a lot in law school and they worked a lot on their LSAT. Like they, they enjoy this to a point where they can put in more time than the people around them. And it might not even be that much more time, but it's enough to make them substantially different in the final outcome. And, uh, we have those lawyers who leave and they're making, you know, they're in the bottom, uh, distribution and they're making something like forty five, fifty thousand $50,000 a year. 
Uh, in any case, I mean, I think that just reflects this, and I don't know how much of this is a chicken egg problem as well, but if you go into this and you love it, this is the place for you and you're going to do very well. Uh, but if you don't, you're not going to do very well and you're either going to be miserable or you're going to leave. I mean, one thing that they say at law firms too is it's up, it's either up or out, right? You either keep going up the ladder and become a partner or you leave the firm eventually. And it's, <laughs> it is, it is, it is such a structured path. Like that's one thing that you were saying too, is that you go there and the whole process is kind of all laid out. You have to get your first semester grades and then you get a job that summer and the job that you get that summer increases your likelihood of getting a similar job at another firm the next summer. And depending on how well you do well that that job over the summer, you may get hired by that firm. It's all very structured. And if you like what you're doing, then you're going to thrive in that predictability and that structure. If you don't, it's just like one <laughs> battle after another. You have to force yourself through the LSAT. Then you have to force yourself through law school and then force yourself through memos until one in the morning. And I, you said that the attorneys deal with substance abuse. I feel like when I took my um, ethics classes uh, to take the bar or something. I, I felt like one of the classes talked about how among um, working professional white collar jobs, uh, lawyers actually suffer, suffer from substance abuse more than any other white collar job. Is that, do you know if that's true? I don't, I mean, I don't know that it matters. It's significant, whatever it is. <laughs> well, I think it does matter, but I don't know the exact numbers that I don't know offhand, but I've seen it like so many different places. I've seen it in the New York Law Journal. They come out with articles almost every week or every other week about some some like big law associate that passed away from drug overdose or, you know, people that have changed their lives around doing something like what I'm doing because they've suffered from substance abuse. Um, and actually in New York, because I'm licensed in New York, after you pass the bar, you have to take... Um, one CLE program, like a continuing legal education credit. So for those of you who are still unaware of what happens after law school, you still have to spend, I spent like a thousand dollars out of my own pocket last year taking credits for, you know, continuing your legal education, keeping your license. But in any event, right after you pass the bar, you, you're required to take this specific class and it's all about substance abuse. And there's um, in the law and how, you know, just because you get drink drunk during your lunch meeting before court doesn't mean that you're not fit to be a lawyer unless it affects your performance. But if you are suffering from alcoholism or substance abuse, know that the Bar Association has like a, you know, a program for you and they'll help you recover. So it was a, it was like a four hour or like a six hour long thing that I had to watch. And it was crazy and it was so sad. But, um, yeah, like, I, I know so many people. I've met more people, and I've been exposed to more drugs in law school than any other place or time in my life. And I've gone to music festivals, and I've, like, done all that crazy stuff, too. But not crazy stuff like drugs. I'm just saying, like, I've done, you know, I've, I've, I'm from New York. I've gone out in this scene. I've, but the place I've been exposed to the most drugs that surprised me was in law school. And that is... You know, and they're people who function very highly. So you never know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, 
Uh, good questions. I mean, do you have any? That was your that that all stemmed, I guess, from your one piece of advice to to figure out your why. Do you do you have any other advice that you you like to give people who are going down this path? Yeah. So I I want to turn it on to a positive note because I don't want to have everyone you know I don't want to discourage people unnecessarily. Like if you know that you're not the type of person that would give in to substance abuse, and you know that you just want to work hard, but you also want to get rest. Here's my big piece of advice. So recently, I don't know if you've heard um, the Dr. Rhonda Patrick podcast, but she's great. And she had someone on there recently, um, Matthew Walker. He's a sleep expert. And it was all about how pulling all-nighters actually is, you know, sleep deprivation is low-level brain damage and how you need sleep to transfer information from your short-term to your long-term memory. And you need it, you need if you think of your brain like a computer, you need sleep before a big event because it allows you to open up a new document, so to speak. And then you need sleep after your learning because it allows you to press save. So I had a whole big conversation with this with my community. And what I said is, okay, here are some other ways that you can succeed without pulling all-nighters. And trust me, I've pulled plenty of all-nighters and I've never been like, oh, thank God I've pulled that all-nighter. I really, if I didn't pull that all-nighter, I wouldn't have gotten that question right or something. Like that's never happened to me. And if anything, it's made me perform poorly or more poorly on a test because I was moving slower and all of these tests are time sensitive. So my big tips for if you want to do well and be healthy is to Number one, prioritize sleep. And it sounds so silly and it sounds like something so far off, especially if you're in college now, but figure out how much sleep you need and it's different for everyone. And like, just make sure that you're getting that amount of sleep at least during your test prep stages and maybe not all semester in law school, but at least the last two or three weeks before the test. Make sure you're getting sleep. Make sure that you're, number two, energizing your body in other ways with food and the right food. So in my law school, we only had like the crappiest food ever offered. And so I had um, my club, I was president of the Environmental Law Society. We had a bake sale one year and it was called Brain Food. And we would just sell food like that's actually healthy for you, you know, apples with oats and um, walnuts for your brain and all other kinds of snacks to allow you to fuel your body properly. And I know that's a big thing to ask for some people. They might not know where to start. And I'm not saying I'm the expert on diet, but at least make conscious decisions when you are studying. Don't go for the soda. Maybe go for just hydrating yourself. Take a glass of water. I promise you that can wake up your eyeballs because you're going to get your eyeballs hydrated and that'll allow you to read. It sounds so stupid, but it works for me. And then the other things you can do are make sure that you're organizing and outlining straight away. So I always look at the big picture first. The biggest piece of advice I got when I was in law school at orientation is to open up the table of contents or look at the syllabus and look at the big picture because you might not understand what it means now, but as you're learning the tiny little details and you're getting lost in all these rabbit holes and black holes of discussions in class and in your mind when you're analyzing things, it really helps if you have a big picture. So find some kind of organization system that works for you and start early. And then the other thing I recommend is to work on your professional development and your personal brand. Maybe not your personal brand right away if you're 
if that's so far removed from you and you're not even thinking about jobs yet. But the more you put yourself out there and you build your network and you join clubs and you you interact with other like-minded people, they will help you along the way. Those people will pull you up and make up for any lack that you might have in your grades or in your, like, um, you know, in your LSAT performance or if you didn't make the journal in law school or whatever it is. You can make up for any academic, in, for the most part, once you're already in law school, you can make up for academic lack in other areas if you just build your network and find your community and the, the niche that you want to be in, you those things won't matter at the end of the day because, let's be honest, bees get degrees. Once you're in law school, you just got to graduate and pass the bar and then all the other work you're putting in, you can find that job you love if you start early and start to figure out what you want early by joining communities and networking. And then last but not least is obviously to focus on strategies and substantive review um, but really try to figure out the strategies strategies and try to understand what you're doing and you can understand what you're doing if you've looked at the outline in the organization all the small details will fall into place but figure out a way that you can really just make your workflow more efficient because you don't need to put in 50 hours a week studying for the LSAT or studying for law school or the bar exam if you figure out what works for you early and then just set up a workflow from there so that you know every time you have a class, you outline, then you condense it, then you practice writing out, you know, your sample essay so that you can just answer it on the test really quickly. That's just an example for a law school, but there are so many other ways that work. Just find what works for you. And so those are really my big four pieces of advice for productivity overall is just number one, get some sleep, focus on your health. Number two, move around. Just again, your health, your sleep. Um, I, I don't remember what number two was right there. Sorry. But number three, definitely focus on your networking, your professional development and your community and getting real life experience and talking to people and being nice. And then number four, then you can worry about the substantive work and the strategies and everything like that. I want to ask a question about <clears throat> LSAT prep uh, specifically. The LSAT's a little bit unique, um, or it's different from law school in that you can retake the test, and many people do need to retake the test um, multiple times sometimes in order to achieve their highest score. What do you say to a student who scores, you know, 169 through 179 on 20 practice tests, timed, proctored practice tests, consistently in the 170s, maybe a 169 here or there, and then goes into the actual test and scores a 164. What, what do you say to that student? Um, just what's the first thing you say, I guess? So I was actually one of those kinds of people. So and. I have to admit that I only took the test once because at that point I already, I was, you know, I didn't know my why and I didn't know. And that was also when LSAC had the rule that you couldn't take it more than a certain number of times because I took it in 2011. But I kind of just cut my losses and went going. 
I don't recommend that for everyone because I haven't been, I wasn't exposed to things like your podcast and people online. Like I wasn't part of any online communities and support groups or anything like that. I didn't have any friends taking the LSAT with me. So I didn't take it again. If I could go back, I would say, all right, well, what's your end goal? Is your end goal to work in big law? All right, then you want to get into a T14 school, then you should take it again and take a gap year and take as long as you need to because you have it in you already. You're so close. Just work on your mindset, work on your stress management because that's the one thing that you can keep consistent. You can't control what logic game problem will pop up. You can't control how boring the reading comprehension passages are from one test to another, but you can control your stress and your mindset while you're going into the test. And the way you do that is you control your mindset while you're studying. If you're super stressed out the whole time you're studying, you're going to be even more stressed the day of the test. So what I did when I was studying for the LSAT is I tried to make it as fun as possible for me. I took it in June and I stayed up. I went to school upstate New York in Binghamton. I started studying maybe in like February and then after finals in May, I stayed up in my apartment where no one else was and I just went outside and I studied outside and I like took breaks every three hours to go to the gym or I worked part-time at a pizza place and I just like made it my own really selfish time and it was really fun and I look back on that time fondly. So I was very relaxed going into the test and yeah, I didn't score, you know, as high as I could, but I also said like I wasn't aware of all the options back then and I think I would have probably taken a year off to um, figure everything out and reapply but and retake the test and reapply. But I kind of just cut my losses and went with it because I did get scholarship offers anyway. But yeah, my biggest piece of advice would be to identify what what is making you have performance anxiety. And if it is your mindset, then start working on that and you can totally get your highest score possible the next time around. How does she work on it? I mean, you know, this is, sorry, today's the score release date. Uh, So Ben and I are both getting blown up with emails and text messages and phone calls and stuff um, from people who got their results today. And it's like, it's this, this day is always the same for, for people in our position because we get a whole bunch of really great outcomes and we get a whole bunch of really shitty, shitty outcomes. And we can't really predict who's going to be who because there's just so much randomness in it. But you know, this student, I did notice while she was preparing that she just, she beats herself up a lot about her bad performances and she's going to take it again. I mean, I'm going to talk her into taking it again in June and taking it again in July, if necessary, that was the plan from the get go. And so I'm not worried. I think she just needs to take it again and again, if necessary, but she you know, she's just like, I don't know what happened. I don't know where I went wrong. Maybe it was because I got so nervous. So how does she not get so nervous next time? I mean, the test will be here in another couple months. Um, what can, what does she have any concrete tips for her to how to get rid of that anxiety? Yeah. So, um, another thing that I, I I guess preach (laughs) is not the right term, but I guess I preach is that overwhelm is a choice. You can look at any goal, an obstacle, and it looks really hard to, like if you look at a mountain from really far away at the bottom, you're like, oh, I don't want to climb that mountain. That looks impossible. How am I ever going to get there? But then after you start hiking it and you go one step at a time and you just tackle the next path, okay, I'm going to do the switchback an hour, whatever it is eventually you get to the top and you're like, oh, that was not as hard. And you, when you broke it down into bite-sized pieces, it was not 
that overwhelming. So you have to look at every obstacle as an opportunity rather than just something to overwhelm you. Because if you're getting overwhelmed, you need to come back to your why. You need to calm yourself down and remember why you're going through this. Because at the end of the day, if she doesn't want to be at one of those big law firms, then does it really, really matter if she gets a 174 versus a 169? She can still get a full scholarship to a ton of other really great schools. And if she wants to go into, you know, um, being a prosecutor or if she wants to be in legal aid or something like that, some kind of public service, your time is also well spent networking and, and giving back and volunteering and things like that because, you know, those kinds of skills breed really great prosecutors and great public servants as well. So it's all coming back to what is your why. And when you find yourself getting overwhelmed, you need to come back to your why and then use that to motivate you and propel you forward. My other piece of advice would be to not go extra hard the second time around. Don't think that working your way through it is necessarily the best thing to do um, because that is probably the problem that got you there in the first place. So I would say focus on taking breaks. Um, Take you know, and I was one of those poor people that took Kaplan, unfortunately, but the biggest thing I learned and the biggest piece of advice I got back then was to not study for more than three hours at a time, because at that point, your brain is just like, you're not going to concentrate and you're not going to get the most out of the time that you're spending. So take a break, whether it's every 90 minutes or every three hours. And I did this during the bar exam too. And I swear it made the biggest difference in my, um, test taking abilities on the day of the test just take a break after three hours go for a walk go get lunch with a friend if you don't have other friends studying for the LSAT go that's great go hang out with people that are not studying for the LSAT don't sit on the Facebook groups and work yourself up on your breaks when you're procrastinating in the LSAT Facebook group like go hang out with your other friends My best friend at the time I was studying for the bar exam was making jewelry. So I would go over to her house with something like a question set that was easy to grade at nine o'clock at night. And we would have a a bottle of wine and we would, she would make jewelry and I would do my work and we'd like casually talk and things like that actually helped me in the long run, even though it kind of sounds like, oh, what is she doing? Drinking wine while studying, hanging out with her friends? Like, no, figure out things that will make you pull away from the rabbit hole of that you can go into beating yourself up and overanalyzing everything because I promise you if you get into that habit now it's only going to get worse you're only going to find that again in law school when you're going through your 1L classes and trying to think of you know the answers in civil procedure and when you're in your first year at work and you're trying to figure out the answer to the research question in your memo you're, there's so many opportunities to overthink everything but it's up to you to find what works for you For me, it was taking walks outside and going to yoga. And for other people, it might be playing guitar or, you know, going away for the weekend or something like that. So you just got to find what works for you to pull yourself out of it and find those other friends and other people that will pull you out of your studies. Don't just surround yourself with people that are doing the same thing as you. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show, Nina. Um, well, how can people reach you uh, and learn more about what you have to tell them? Great. So my um, thank you so much for having me also, by the way. I am a huge fan of your podcast, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And I just wanted to say before I give my information that what you guys are doing with the LSAT Demon is so huge because it really will 
promote more work-life balance, I think, amongst LSAT students because they will have the app, you know, just at their disposal, at their disposal, at their hands so that they can do it very easily and it's accessible. They can do it, you know, in between things and they can work on their time management in a more efficient way. So I really appreciate the way and the direction that you guys are going. Um, with that said, my information, you can go to my website, which is zenprep.org, Z-E-N-P-R-E-P.org, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Nina Marinaro. And also on Instagram, the handle is love.lawyerlife because I am trying to make everyone love their life as a lawyer because it is possible. You can build a sustainable and successful career if you build the habits now. It's so much easier because you won't get into those habits of beating yourself up, overworking, overthinking, and then looking back in 10 years and saying, oh gosh, where did my youth go? So... Yeah, that's pretty much my message. And thank you guys so much for, uh, you know, everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Beautiful. Thanks, Nina, for, uh, again, for being on the show. Yeah, I don't know. How much of this do we need to run through, Ben? Well, let's see. If you want to find our events, go to Thinking LSAT on Instagram. Um, you can learn more about my courses at strategyprep.com and Nathan's at foxlsat.com. Our joint project, of course, is the LSAT Demon at lsatdemon.com that continues to grow every day, and it's exciting to see that. That was show number 189. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.